This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to the Summer Hack Podcast. I'm Dave Marchese. And right now we're bringing you another really popular episode from our climate change podcast, Who's Going to Save Us? It's all about everyday people getting the chance to decide climate policy, not the politicians. It sounds wild, but it's actually happening in some parts of the world. And hack reporter Joe Lauder and Who's Going to Save Us host Joe Lauder is here to chat about it. Hey, Joe. Hello. Citizen Assembly sounds like a crazy idea for a lot of people listening now. Do they actually work? Yes and no. And you've got to listen to the podcast. <laughs> it, Yeah, they can. And it's actually been really interesting. This is the idea that France essentially chose 150 total randoms taught them a bit about climate change, gave them access to the best experts and being like, what do you think we should do? And the message behind it is that these kind of citizens' assemblies do really work when you give people the information and the time. And everyday people can come up with really intelligent solutions. The problem is when it gets back to politics and how politicians implement what the everyday people want. So... It's a bit of a mixed message. Uh, it always comes back to politics, doesn't it? At the end of the day, yeah, It does. Have you heard much <laughs> more talk about citizens' assemblies in general since doing this podcast? Like, are we starting to see conversations about them appear not only in climate change policy but in other parts of the world in conversations? Well, one thing I learned during this story that I didn't know is that Australia is actually a world leader for citizen juries, but we don't often do it at a national level. So it's really common to have them, say, at a local council level where you have residents who get to kind of, you know, inform policy or whatever. Um, And it actually came up quite a bit around the most recent election in Australia as well, saying similar things that we need a climate assembly. Um, So it is gaining traction. And it's interesting that a lot of people see it as a solution to a lot of um, political disillusionment that we have, not just with climate change, but with lots of issues that people feel like politicians don't represent them, and somehow we need to have more of a say, not just every few years at an election. So interesting. Can't wait to get into this one. Thanks, Joe. You can catch the full series of Who's Going to Save Us wherever you get your podcasts. But right now, let's dive into this episode on Citizen Assemblies. Want to know what's going to save us from climate change? How about a climate dictator? Some people actually argue that the authoritarian response to climate issues is better. So imagine a dictator from a huge country uh, requiring his people, and I'm using the pronoun he because dictators are usually men, uh, imagine a dictator telling his people to stop eating meat or stop using cars or ban all industries that use fossil fuels. Then problem solved, right? Right? Who knew? All we need to solve climate change is a solid dose of authoritarianism. By the way, that isn't what Professor Nicole Curado thinks. Notwithstanding the fact that authoritarian regimes don't necessarily perform better with climate outcomes, uh, there is a strong argument to say that democracy plays a role in crafting legitimate climate solution. Meaning no one, no climate scientist, no economist, no ethicist, no activist, no one has the monopoly of good ideas and correct answers on climate issues. Nicole Corrado is a professor of political sociology at the University of Canberra. She studies how regular people can use democracy to drive recovery following traumatic events like armed conflict or climate disasters. 
And Nicole thinks that meaningful climate solutions need input from a whole bunch of different people with different perspectives, something democracy is pretty good at. But what you think when you hear the word democracy is probably something a bit narrower than what Nicole has in mind. Yes, absolutely. There is a tendency to reduce democracy to electoral democracy, which is to reduce our democratic obligations to voting. Every few years, we rock up at the ballot box, cast our vote, and then leave it up to whoever gets elected. But so far, our elected police have been slow to act on climate change, and we're running out of time. What Nicole wants is deliberative democracy. So... In my work, I define deliberative democracy as a political aspiration and also a political project. We live in a world where disinformation, hyper-partisanship, hate speech, misogyny, all of these have been normalized. So our challenge is to find ways to create conditions where ordinary people can express their views, listen to others, but also convince politicians to respect and listen to what people have been saying. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Who's Gonna Save Us, the show where we meet the people helping us navigate our way to a better future. And today, it's people power. Just how much can we achieve if we pull together in ways that, on a short-term scale, might seem a bit unusual, but actually on a longer scale are inherently human? So what happens when governments hand over their power and everyday people are given the power to come together and decide how an entire country responds to climate change? I want to take you to France and inside one of the biggest democratic experiments of our times, one that could pave the way for climate solutions led by people getting the chance to talk about climate change and listen to each other and the best experts. It started on a summer holiday. I was in Greece. I was at the beach in Greece near Athens. This is Amandine Rogemont. In September 2019, Amandine was 27. She was in between jobs and she'd left Paris to chill on the beach when something unexpected happened. I got this text message out of the blue. Uh, actually, I, I have kept the text message. I look at it sometimes to remember that moment. It was exactly 9.24am and the message was in all caps. So, bonjour. Votre numéro de téléphone Hello, your phone number has been randomly selected to participate in a climate convention organised by the Economic, Social and Environmental Council in France. It went on asking, are you interested in taking part? Répondez oui ou non. At first, Amandine thought it was a joke. It wasn't. Amandine got that text at a time when France was at a political roadblock. A nationwide protest called the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vests, had brought the country to a standstill. Paris has been the site of pitched street battles for the past month. It started out as a protest against rising fuel prices, partly caused by a carbon tax. But it quickly grew into a revolt against the government, led by President Emmanuel Macron. Shop front windows have been smashed. It looks like it's been firebombed. President Macron needed to show the people that he was listening to their needs. He toured the country, introduced a bunch of new measures, and critically, he promised that from now on, citizens in France will be more involved in big decisions. He introduced a citizens' assembly. You'll also hear it called a deliberative democracy or a mini-public. 
It's a way for ordinary citizens to come together in a jury of sorts. As representatives of the people, the citizens are asked to come up with solutions for some of the government's stickiest problems. Macron called this one the Citizens' Convention for the Climate. Their job? To figure out how France can cut its emissions by 40% by 2030. And Macron promised that he would introduce their policies unfiltered. Back on that beach in Athens, Amadine's text meant that she'd been picked to be part of this experiment. All she had to do was reply, yes. Oui. <laughs> I felt really like a citizen duty. I mean, your country is asking something that is really meaningful for the community. Uh, I felt I had to do it. I said yes two hours later. It took me two hours to say yes. By saying yes, Amadine's entire life was about to change. But not everyone was thrilled at the idea of ordinary people being brought into the policy space. I, I remember very well, so I heard it on the radio. My first reaction was that, what, what the hell is this? Louis Gatan Giraudet is an environmental economist at the International Centre for Researching Environment and Development, or CIRED for short. Well, there are people like me working on designing fair and effective policies, and the government is going to pick randomly 150 people and ask them to do just what we've been doing for over 10 years. So, so I didn't see the point. But Gatan was also curious. He'd spent so much of his time figuring out fair and effective policies to stop global warming, only to watch governments and citizens reject them. He felt that there was a gap between the types of climate policies that we need versus the solutions we actually get. By chance, there was a call that was circulated to participate as an observer for research and observing the debate. So I saw here an opportunity to get a better understanding of how people handle these policies. And I was soon very passionate about it. On the first day, Amandine had to head to one of the parliament buildings in Paris. All up, there were 150 citizens who travelled from across the country to be there that morning. I think we were all very nervous because we didn't know each other. So you have to imagine, like, you get in this big building uh, in Paris. It's very impressive to be there. And then you are just like taking a coffee and waiting for the thing to happen with people that you don't know. There would be seven of those seminars held over three-day weekends. They were all paid for their time. And from those initial text messages, the organisers had made a final selection to make sure the jury really reflected what France looks like. We were young people, a lot of old people, uh, retired people, from countryside and during having done really different jobs in our lives. And that was really, that was really powerful. The first seminar was a crash course in climate change. It's important that everyone was up to speed equally and the organisers brought in the best climate experts in Europe to show why it was so crucial to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Amadine had been to the odd climate march, but she says listening to the experts really deepened her appreciation. Of course, I didn't know all the scientific part of it and all, all um, the data we got during the convention was amazing and I didn't have it before. So I learned a lot. For others in the group, Gatan said these lectures were a revelation. These were a big shock for many of the participants. Some claimed that they 
they came as climate as skeptics and after these lectures they completely changed their mind right so they'd never actually for some of them they hadn't really ever engaged deeply with this issue and kind of sat down and learnt about the science until this point not until participating in this assembly they then broke up into five smaller groups, each looking at a different aspect of climate policy. Because climate affects so many different parts of the society we live in, some groups would go deeper on, say, climate and housing, and others would look at transportation. I was in the consuming group, so working mostly on, like, how do you buy things? Why do you buy things? What is the role of publicity and what advertising has to do with climate change and how it can impact our behaviours as consumers. These guys became specialists in their area and would work to develop policies in that space. Every step of the way, experts from across legal, economic and political fields would be there to offer advice. The proposals had to be really sharp and uh, almost ready to, to be uh, debated by uh, parliament or whoever was uh, the appropriate level. Gatan was a fly on the wall in these sessions. He says he was struck by how everyone came together. We saw passion, dedication, engagement. So that was exhilarating. And actually, there was a lot of, of passion and even love for one another and, and even for, for, for the facilitators. That doesn't mean everyone got on all the time. Of course, in a group, you always have like somebody that is talking ahead the others. And of course, we had that in the convention. We had people that were raising their voice uh, easier than others. So you really have to think about all these really human mechanisms uh, in a group and, and how to balance all of this and be sure that everyone has the opportunity to contribute at some point. It was a lot of pressure to be under. It was so intense at some point, like we were taking afternoons or a day off at our job to go to the Elysee Palace for a meeting with the president. So it was crazy. Their work didn't end with the seminars either, and Amadine says many of them would be constantly researching in their spare time and having conversations with experts on the weekends. And then there was a the media attention. We got to do interviews. We went public, and so all of us had calls from journalists and all that, and it was the first time in it's taking you a lot of time, of course, on your on your personal uh, agenda. So I think you leave that once in your, in your life, like this, this kind of public attention on you, on your work, your voice being meaningful and being heard. You really have to, yeah, to, to, be, uh, to be at the top and to be proud of yourself also. The seminars went on for seven months. Meanwhile, life outside moved at a fast pace. Over European winter, they watched Australia burn in the bushfire crisis. Australia, the situation is already catastrophic, in particular in the region of Sydney. And then the pandemic hit. I am literally positive on COVID-19. Finally, in mid-2020, the seminars ended. Their policies were ready. There were 149 measures in the report. You've not seen the, the complete report. It's, a, it's on the internet, but when you see it, I mean physically, it looks like a Bible, really. It's so big. When taken together, these measures were expected to cut France's greenhouse gas emissions by nearly half. That's a bold drop. And so when these measures were presented to President Macron and to the public, 
Well, the policies were bold too. There were the types of changes it's hard to imagine politicians discussing. We're talking about banning building new airports and scrapping air routes where you can drive or take public transport in less than four hours. They wanted to drop highway speed limits by 30 kilometres an hour, something researchers say is effective in curbing emissions. They wanted the French government to stop all their trade negotiations with other countries so they could write in environmental conditions. Then there were the proposals from Amandine's group, the one studying consumption. This measure I was really attached to was to actually stop advertising on the products that had a bad uh, carbon impact. What Amandine was proposing was a total ban on advertisements for products that are big carbon emitters. Like, for example, cars. We didn't understand why it was still allowed to have advertising on, like, the big fuel cars. So we wanted to forbid this kind of publicity. And you might be wondering how they'd pay for all these policies. The Assembly decided it was up to big corporations to foot the bill. So with a report the size of the Bible sitting on President Macron's desk, it was up to him to pass these policies into law. Climate change requires us to do more, like the people are telling us to do, and it's the time to act and time for concrete action. This is from the press conference Macron put on just after the proposals were handed over. He begins by talking about his promise from the start that the proposals will be passed sans filtre, or without filter. I had told you all the successful and precise proposals will be transmitted without filter. But now, face-to-face with these measures, Macron announced a change in tact. He said he would implement all the changes with a catch. By effectively transmitting all of your proposals, with the exception of three jokers, which I told you about in January. Macron gave himself three vetoes, which he called his joker cards. He said he mentioned them in January, but this was the first that anyone else had heard of them. And where your standard deck of cards has two jokers, Macron gave himself three. The first one was reduction of speed limits on motorways from 130 kilometres an hour to 110. This was already a hot-button issue in France and one of the catalysts for the Yellow Vests movement. We said, don't make the same mistake as me. Uh, We won't endorse this measure. And then the other measure that he, Macron, vetoed was taxing corporate dividends to finance the ecological transition. That was their funding plan, a tax on big corporations. And uh, he said that this would uh, threaten France's competitiveness. So obviously he's a very uh, liberal uh, politician. I guess there was some uh, ideology here that motivated him to, to reject this measure. The third was even more contentious. It was about the most radical proposal that the collective suggested. And then the last measure that he he vetoed was the recognition of the crime of ecocide, uh, which he said was too risky. This proposal wanted to make it a crime to commit ecocide, its environmental destruction. By making it a criminal offence, the head of a company responsible for, say, an oil spill could be sent to prison. Passing the bill would have made France the first country in the world to do this. But Macron rejected it. Instead, he promised to push ecocide as an offence, so not quite as serious as a crime. Did you think that Macron was 
going to introduce all the recommendations? Like, did you ever think that that was going to happen? Tricky question because I wanted to believe it, but at the same time, I know a bit about the political field in France and I'm not so naive about it. So maybe, maybe I, I knew this was not going to happen in the end. So yeah, there is, yeah, there is a lot about words in French politics, like, and phrases, you know, so. That's not just French politics, by the way. Yeah. World, world right politics, <laughs> actually. And, uh, yeah. So, so I try not to just put, focus my mind on the, on the words, but also on the act. Amandine didn't lose hope. There were still 147 more measures waiting to become law. Macron followed through and pushed them into parliament. Catan says this is where it got worse. The big disappointment came clearly after that, when they realised that the, the, the law bill was uh, much weaker than what their proposals taken together. It's called the Climate and Resilience Law 2021. The problem was, in their journey through the Houses of Parliament, these measures became more and more watered down. Take Amandine's proposal for a ban on car ads. This didn't go through. Instead, they decided that car ads would have warning labels on them. It's like how it works with cigarettes, except the messages are like, consider carpooling and hashtag move pollute less. It's not yet fully clear if these watered down laws will cut France's greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. That's the thing with the French Citizens' Assembly. On paper, the experiment failed. And Catan, who wanted to study the gap between politics and climate action, his initial doubts were confirmed. Strictly speaking, the output of convention is sound, ambitious and coherent. But then the follow-up is very disappointing. It makes even more transparent the gap between the people's expectations and what the political governments are able to do. The French Citizens' Assembly wasn't the big fireworks moment that people expected, but it didn't end here. The Assembly made waves that rippled out into French society. The 149 measures put radical ideas for climate policy on the table. It became pub talk and dinner party conversation. For Gatan, this was something he could never achieve on his own. It has really reinforced some kind of legitimacy around the policy proposal. Just mentioning the fact that this was proposed by the assembly legitimizes it in the public debate. So that's, that's a very uh, positive uh, outcome, I would say. For Amandine, she was crushed to see their policies dismissed and weakened. The Citizens' Assembly was wrapped up, but she hasn't stopped fighting. Today, if I was just telling you about, like, it's a mess, we were all disappointed by the French experiment, it's not really encouraging, I mean, for other countries to, to do so. And I still think that this process need to need to spread. So do you consider it a successful experiment in the end? I mean, on a personal level, when you talk to all the citizens that were part of it, it was really a life-changing for them, a life-changing experience. I mean, it's a success for me because now I know what I want to fight for in my citizen life. And it's changing also, I don't know, the vision of my work, the vision of my daily life. Some of the citizens started to do politics also. 
they were elected on a local and regional level or they were now involved in national presidential campaign because they know they have the legitimacy to do so and they feel like they need to continue this mission they were they were chosen at random for in the first place. But there is something like really of a commitment that is really deep. And so for us, it was so meaningful that I cannot say it's not a success on that. Amadine ended up getting a job, by the way. She now works at the Palace of Versailles, once upon a time, the decadent centre for French royal life. So it's a little ironic that Amadine's also a passionate advocate for the role of democracy in fighting climate change. She even got a chance to speak about her experiences in the Citizens' Assembly at COP26 in Glasgow. The Assembly changed her life, and she wants her to change other people's lives too. It's really important first to give you the opportunity to connect with the society of your country and feel that you are connected and you want the same good and the same interest. And that is so precious today. And after I spoke to Amandine about this, France announced a restriction on fossil fuel ads. A total ban on ads by oil and gas companies was one of the measures first pitched by the Citizens' Assembly. And while this new law doesn't go as far as the Assembly's proposal, it does make France the first country in the world to do this. So now I'm back with Nicole Corrado, a professor of political sociology at the University of Canberra. Nicole, the goal of the French version of the Citizens' Convention for Climate Change was to come up with a climate policy that would get France to its emission targets of 40% by 2030. And they couldn't really do it at the end of the day. But at the same time, we heard from Amandine and also Gatan that they felt like it was really successful and it won in other ways. Do you think it was worth it? I think it's worth it. It's worth it in the sense that it demonstrated a proof of concept that you can trust ordinary citizens to come up with intelligent climate policies, policies that are even more progressive than what parliaments can come up with. I think what's beautiful about the French Assembly is that we saw ordinary people from bus drivers to students to nurses to refugees contributing to policymaking in an intelligent and informed manner. So even if they did not get everything that they want from President Macron, I think it's still successful because it's a proof of concept that ordinary citizens can be trusted to make intelligent decisions. Yeah, one thing that really struck me about it was that when you give ordinary citizens access to experts and to the scientific evidence around climate change, and like you said, this was a group from across the political spectrum, they came up with pretty radical solutions. And I think maybe, well, definitely more radical than Macron was expecting. What was it about the Citizens' Assembly that actually cut through and really got to the heart of the science, would you say? I think it's because information was made readily available to ordinary citizens. The best and the brightest of French universities was available on tap. And people can just ask them uh, to help them construct arguments and clarify disinformation or wrong information about climate change that they've encountered in their everyday lives. And I think the point of, of a citizen's assembly is that you don't just have access to credible information, but we also have access to citizens that we would otherwise not meet had we just stayed in our own echo chamber, right? So I think that is the beauty of a citizens' assembly. We meet a diversity of people and we come to recognize the different considerations of people coming from different backgrounds when we try to craft solutions together. And that 
that doesn't happen all the time. With the French Citizens' Assembly, we spoke to Gatan, who was a climate economist, and he was saying about when he first heard about it, he was kind of outraged because he was like, hang on, I'm an expert in this field. There are plenty of experts out there who have the answers. Why are you handing it over to a bunch of randoms? Why wouldn't we just leave it to experts? Because experts don't have the monopoly of good answers. And experts themselves don't have a consensus on policies that countries should take when it comes to managing climate change. The problem with experts is that they can only see the problem from the perspective in which they are trained to see. So if you're a climate economist, you will only see the problem from an economic perspective. If you're a climate scientist, you only see the problem from a scientific perspective. And this is these are issues that experts themselves cannot solve. Nicole, if we gave you the task of developing a citizens' assembly on climate change in Australia, how would you design it? Are there any particular quirks that you would want to introduce or anything that you would do differently to the French one? Right. Okay. This is really this is really challenging. I think a climate assembly in Australia must be tightly connected to the plight of Indigenous people. The way I will design it will take First Nations voice seriously and have our climate debate and discussion anchored on the justice issues that our Indigenous communities face. I think that's a distinctly Australian challenge to recognize that our environment is intimately tied to the lives of First Nations people. So I would love to see 100 randomly selected people, not just Australians, because there are a lot of temporary migrants in Australia, 100 randomly selected people who live in Australia to come together maybe in the old parliament house, the Museum of Australian Democracy, maybe hosted in indigenous land, come together uh, representing the microcosm of our society and create a compelling statement for the sustainable future of planet Earth. I would love to see that and have really good music during downtime. Before you get too excited, no, we didn't get to take over old parliament house and host our very own citizens' assembly. But we did combine really good music and everyday people and climate solutions. In July this year, I headed along to the Splendour in the Grass Music Festival and got people there to pitch me their climate solutions and what they would do if they were in charge of Australia's climate change policy. Probably the biggest thing for me is actually listening to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and giving them a voice in Parliament. I know there's already a big movement for that, but they were the um, first carers for this land and they did such a good job for such a long time and I think there needs to be a mix between scientists and those traditional owners and like a respectable equal relationship where we can both learn from each other and see each other on an equal playing field. Um, I have one solution. Um, I'm sure there are many, many things that need to happen Um, but I think Australia in particular needs to invest in its own onshore manufacturing when it comes to um, textiles and food and um, industry and infrastructure because in our supply chains there is so much that happens all over the world and obviously that's a massive carbon footprint but also um, there's so much we can't control and is you know privatized and we just have no idea where our stuff our consumer goods are coming from Um, it would be so good if that was happening in Australia and we could do that sustainably and monitor it. She said it was a dumb idea, but... um, Tell me your idea. 
sand or I know we need it on earth for droughts and to countries that don't have much water. I think we should send flood water to Mars and start a veggie patch on Mars so we can send people to Mars and start a civilization on flood water. Well, I filter it out, boil it up a couple of times, easy to Boil drink. it up, send it to Mars. I, I mean, I get where you're going. I'm not sure if, like, your climate solution is going to have a lot of support, but I know what you're saying. Uh, it's definitely not a great idea, but I'm just, I'm sick of water. What is your climate change solution? If you were coming up with climate change policy, or, like, what would you like to see happen? Uh, I'd definitely like to see more action, I guess, sort of having more uh, governments from, you know, different governments, different countries working together on it, because I feel like, you know, given that it's a global issue, it shouldn't be up to each individual country to decide. So do you mean like the world comes up with Australia's, say like emissions targets, because they're like, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, this is your role? I think if we have better cooperation with, you know, different different countries we can all find a middle ground that'll work for each country hey joe so nice to speak to you my name's rach um i'm a coral scientist um and i work um in algae biotech Ah. trying to tell everyone that algae has great potential to not save the planet but to get us on the way for people that don't know why, what could algae be doing? Like, what kind of role would it play? So algae is a photosynthetic organism, like a tree. So when it grows, it absorbs carbon dioxide and releases oxygen. And algae cells are full of um, the key sort of building blocks of materials. So you've got carbohydrates, protein, and um, oils. The cool thing is, is if you combine that with technology, you can extract those compounds and turn them into things and draw down carbon dioxide in the process. Hello, what's your name? I'm Toby. Toby, all right, yeah, do you have a climate solution to pitch me or like what would you like to do? Um, I think that a solution that's not talked about enough is nuclear. I don't suggest that nuclear should be our only um, electricity source, but I think it, I think we should have a cocktail of all the different sources. I don't think like, renewables which obviously would have talked about the most um i don't think they're completely feasible to have as a hundred percent uh electricity source do you think they will in the future though potentially we'd need uh extremely good batteries like humans we're so smart and if we put enough effort into something we can do it um do you think if that's the case though why do you think nuclear hasn't happened in australia I think people are scared of it. I just have an I sentiment, um, including all different views from people of all different backgrounds in whatever conversation we're having around climate. Um, and I feel like any sort of solution that comes of a big conversation with lots and lots of different people with expertise in all different things um, will be one that like encompasses our collective views. That's so interesting because this is for an episode that we're doing about deliberative democracy, which is this, it's basically this idea that what France did was like, we are going to give 150 strangers, like randoms, they're going to come up with climate change policy in France, we're going to give them access to all the experts and then we're going to get them to decide what we should do. 
it sounds like that's kind of I what you want. That. Yeah, that's I. Yeah, I would be a hundred percent on board with that. And people of all different age demographics, um, from all different industries. I think it's when you give people the opportunity to speak on um, on what they know, um, and then we need people that are good at combining all those different ideas. This all sounds great, but do you think we actually have time for a citizens' assembly? Like, the scientific advice is that we have to cut our emissions by half by 2030 if we want to keep global warming down by 1.5 degrees. So we've got a short amount of time to radically cut emissions and it has to be really ambitious and really fast. So do you think a climate assembly would actually work here or is it just going to delay that work that we need to do now? Yeah, actually, I, I remember uh, the film Don't Look Up, right? And if we think about the climate Armageddon, it might sound quite strange that, you know, an asteroid is about to hit planet Earth and what you want to do is to bring a bunch of people to talk to each other. But an impending Armageddon is about to come. And the answer is yes, even though we need to make these decisions very quickly, even though we need to create policies that are radical enough to save the planet, we can't make those policies without bringing in the voices of ordinary citizens because it is ordinary citizens who will experience the effects of these policies. And so I think a climate assembly is needed in Australia, not just to determine what Australia should do next or how radical our policies should be, but it should also consider how these policies will affect the everyday lives of citizens and how much adjustment citizens are willing to do when these policies are in place. So what is at stake here is the legitimacy of policies. It cannot just be imposed. It needs to be crafted by citizens themselves. Citizens should see the laws that are imposed on them as laws that they created themselves. But whether or not they listen comes down to how broadly or narrowly our leaders are willing to define democracy. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think we have to ask the question, which democracy? So if we are talking about electoral democracy only, like the kind of democracy where political parties are beholden to the interests of their campaign donors, then it's pretty hopeless. Let's not be naive about this. But if we are talking about deliberative democracy, a kind of democracy where elected representatives and grassroots communities, activists and ordinary people come together, seriously listen to each other and amplify the voices of people who are most affected by climate disasters, then maybe democracy is up to the task. I know you mentioned um, dictatorships at the start, but if we were to have a climate dictatorship here, I'd really like you to lead it. Please, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) That is counterintuitive to who I am. Oh, I just love your ideas. I'll follow you anywhere. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks to Amandine Rojaman, Louis Gatan Giraudet and Nicole Corrado. The Macron reads were done by Francois Martin. And thanks to Sciences Po for the additional recording. Who's Gonna Save Us is a co-production of the science team at ABC RN and Triple J Hack. The show is presented by me, Joe Lauder. Shane Anderson is a series producer and Joel Werner and Claire Bloomer are the executive producers. Sound design and mixing by Hamish Camilleri. And the podcast was produced on Gadigal, Bidjigal and Wurundjeri lands.
summer hack.